Thank you for letting me in your house, Yasmina. I'm sorry, I'm saying your name the way I would say it in my language, but it's correct, yeah? Mm, I think, apropos to broken English, for me, every language in which I may say my name is broken because I also don't know. I don't know which version of my name is my name, really. And there is this funny story that when my father was asked to register me, he said Yasmin, like with, which was supposed to be with Y and with double E and with N in the end. And the person who, who was supposed to make that registration said, but don't you want to put an A in the end? It sounds like, it sounds like a boy. So it was a discussion. Yeah, so my father said, okay, maybe, maybe it's a good idea. And then she said, but don't you want maybe to write it with J? And he said, yeah, maybe this is a good idea. So then my, that's how my name became both gendered and Europeanized. So I don't know which is exactly the version of it, which is it, my name. I guess all of those, it can be like, does it need to have versions? Yeah, because everybody's asking me, what's my name? Yeah. And for a long time as a child, I thought my name is Yasmin. But when I could read and write and when I could go to school, I realized that my name was Yasmina. And that was a kind of a shock. Because for a long time, you don't know that because nobody calls you that. It's also very funny that my birth certificate is this green birth certificate, which is saying the Socialist Republic and the Socialist Republic is just crossed out with a line. There was this time when, let's say, these papers were not what one would identify with. And it was also probably, you know, a wild yeah. time to... To be born. To be born. Maybe. Yes. I, I, I mean, it reminded me on, um, you know, how is someone is pronouncing my name. And um, I grew up in the village and my name in the village, the, the way my father gave it to me by his sister, you know, his sister had this name. And he, uh, it's actually, you would pronounce it like Mila, like very long, you know, Mila. And if you would call me, it would be Milo. But it's a village name then, you know, it's like a very old-fashioned grandma-style name. Then when I went to the school in the city, everyone was starting to call me Mila. Mila, 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 Mila. Doesn't matter if you're calling me or just saying my name. And for me, it sounded a bit more hip, you know, sounded a bit more urban rather than Mila. And it just sticked somehow. But still people, when I go home, they always use this kind of old-fashioned pronouncing the name, which for some reason I also was like rejecting myself, thinking it's not cool or something. But yeah, it's a... Uh, if you would ask me today here, for example, in Germany, probably I would say it with a short accent because it's more international. I would confuse people like, oh, it's, you know, you need to go through the casus. It's not Mila, it's Milo. Then, you know, it's kind of too much. I would say Mila. Yes. But not Mila. Yeah, that's confusing when some friends heard my best friend, like, that I live with, how she calls me. They were like, what's this? We never heard about this name. But yeah, it's just different pronunciation. We now know about your name. And uh, as I read 
I mean, actually, I heard about you a long time ago, like some years ago. I think it was 17 or 18 by a common friend. I was in Slovenia and I was speaking about the work that I was making at the time where the work I had this idea of like having multiple languages in where, you know, some people will speak German, some people will speak Serbian and there will be no subtitles. So who can understand what? It's fine. And this guy was like, ah, you know who you should speak with? This girl, Yasmina, she lives in Berlin. Maybe you were somehow involved with Savi at the time. I don't know. And that's how somehow I had this uh, on the radar or if I followed you back then on Instagram or something like that. Finally, now we meet in person, like after I think three, four years, which is cool for me. Yeah, as I read and I checked your portfolio website, there are a lot of things going on there. But uh, you, in a short version of your biography, you say you are like a writer for sound Mm -hmm. and a voice. And you do radio shows, you do sound art, you work with food. So I never encounter someone who writes for sound or what is it? Are you a composer? Mm, I also don't know what it means. I think it's a combination of storytelling and oral histories and the transformation in audio files or when you put it in radio waves. So it's my way of publishing text, actually. So a lot of the stuff you hear that I'm singing or that I'm childishly speaking or I write sometimes with the interviews I make with people. So I, I write with that, which means it has very big connection with literature. I also don't know exactly what it means. It feels like writing like this because the process of thinking or the process of writing itself happens with voice in my house, in my intimacy or in the places where I'm recording, or with the people I'm recording with. So it's a sort of kind of bigger story about who, from which condition, from which class, from which upbringing, education and self-trust and all of that, who has the condition to really write a book. Mm. I'm questioning that all the time because... um, My grandmother is also self-publishing for four years now. She went to pension and she was a biology teacher. I would say she's still a biology teacher, even though she's not going to the school anymore. And she immediately, when she stopped working in the school, she started working on her books. And she was also a librarian of this school. Uh-huh. She entered a circle of literature in, in my hometown and she started publishing books which were a combination of poetry books with her own pictures and um, phytotherapy recipes on what you can do with herbal treatments, but they're maybe not so much about curing, they're more about a possibility of relieving some issue you have. So she goes up the mountain or she goes somehow far away from roads. She's picking plants and then she's drying them and then puts them together. So she's been telling me a lot that I have to write a book because a book stays at least 100 (laughs) years, according to her. And uh, this is what one has to leave behind 
in their lives. And this is for me one of my biggest horrors. I'm like, what if I write something that I'm not going to agree with anytime soon, maybe mm -hmm. even one year after? What if I'm going to sign any contract with somebody who would then want me to go and present this book over and over again when I don't agree with it, maybe two weeks after it's printed? I just have these horrors, like these horror scenarios. And I'm also thinking all the time about the guts which one has to have to be able to say, this is it. This is my book. It has my name on it, the same name that they gave me in the office for. But why do you think this is people? something a bit different than doing any other type of expression? Just because it's easier to delete? Mm. Because this is a. It's not easier to delete. Actually, if they say that if you release radio waves, then they're always gonna be somewhere. I think I have another, I think I'm just tricking myself. I think I'm just tricking myself and this is why I'm saying I'm writing with sound because this is my main publishing method, let's mm -hmm. say, or platform. And I also have another realization that before sound or before, before being able to record myself or even getting that, having that idea, I've been very good at writing SMS. So as a teenager, I was like, so good, so good. Oh my God. I mean, good in a way of like, you were super fast or you were very well elaborated syntax of the sentence was almost like a... Okay, to be good in SMS, there, what are, these, there are these two things, but there's also a third one to be able to write with a few letters because every SMS costs something and it has a limitation of characters. So I'm talking about buttons here. I think about phones as my first publishing platform. And now I'm actually working on a on a on an essay which is supposed to be a, a text to image AI that is combining my personal photos from at least 2015 to now, because that's what I have. I have also some old phones and I'm collecting this information and I put it into this AI that is supposed to be triggered by a live text I'm gonna do. I will write a letter to my screens in which I will try to access my memory and to remind of all of these, these experiences I had with sleeping with the phone under the pillow since I was... Uh. 13 maybe oh. since I got my first phone I think I'm I'm under this permanent reflection of where is my place really do I want to be a writer publishing and having the text I don't know having my voice also trapped in paper do I want I don't know I don't know I mean there is a aspect I, I assume when it's on paper you don't have a sound you know or I mean, you have it in your head while reading it, but um, it's not your sound. I like, think it's a bit simplified because you can, it depends what kind of relationship you have with auditory experiences. I can't even say that publishing on paper would be then canceling the sound of my voice. It, it doesn't do that. But the, the thing is, do I want that? Am I able to write for paper? Um, and when I do write for paper, then I still have the need to read it myself or to give it to others to read it. 
I don't know. I think it's it's also like, you know, every artist finds their own artificial whatever scenario of fueling the monster that makes you do something Mm -hmm. or believe in something. And somehow for me to reflect on the publishing practice is very important because, yeah, most of my childhood I've been told that maybe because I can write some kind of funny, I could probably maybe become a journalist this was the logic so i went to study journalism first and that was a very bad idea it was a terrible idea for many years i had no idea that you could actually be an artist i did not understand what that is i had a luck that a colleague of mine she wrote in the school magazine about sophie calais Mm -hmm. and i think we were 15 or something and then for the first time i thought yeah Actually, you can be an artist. You can be an artist doing weird things like employing yourself as a service person in a hotel and taking pictures of people's beds. I mean, for me, the idea of what artist is really also came super late. I was 20, 21. I was already an academy of art. But uh, the thing what I was thinking that art is... It was very naive. It was uh, something cool uh, to be. And um, it was just painting. I got tired. Four hours a day, five days a week, drilling. And I was like, is this supposed to be art? And, you know, and then just one day there was this not obligatory subject called intermedia art. And then, you know, the universe opened. There is something to it, you know, and uh, I think that's when I got hooked. But I think also this hook of finishing a gymnasium and, you know, wanting to study math, mathematics, and then like going from there to be even cooler, like, oh, let's do art. But if I stayed in this like small traditional bubble, it would be disaster in any way. I still maybe regret I didn't go to math school sometimes. But uh, most of the times I don't. It is cool to be into math. It is. It is. It, it's very. It's now even better. It's more cooler, I would say. Now I think also at that time the idea of of what mathematics could be for me or is also was a bit naive than what it is. And you know, being in a locked or like in a very small bubble in a small country without huge input of contemporaries of this subject, the idea of what it is, it's very limiting. Who knows what it is. And uh, if I would just end up being a teacher in school, which I think was my idea at the time, or being some groundbreaking discoveries and so on. But who, wh- where do mathematicians end up? In engineering or software programming, developing, and so on. But yeah, I'm not um, sad actually. I end up here and I am thinking that even now after 10 years being in this field, I'm trying to reinvent what I want to be now or how I want to work or produce or what needs to be uh, what needs to be sealed as your grandma would say needs to be there hundred years I'm trying to not believe anymore that anything should be long there because as you said having this fear of uh, you know maybe if two weeks I'm not thinking about it for me it was really like Reading some of my interviews I did like eight years ago that are constantly online. Oh my God, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's a, I know that's Mila from that year 
But now I'm doing a warning when I'm doing any kind of interview or giving my opinion. Hey, you listen this now, depending on when you're listening, maybe it's not actually, ask me again, you know, maybe my opinion completely changed, like the wind, left or right, north or west, you know, it doesn't matter. And I think that's completely fine. Yeah, I'm also not thinking that any work or the way of working or giving yourself permission to do something new that I have no clue how it works. Even now we were talking about microphones. I don't know about microphones and still I'm doing some kind of recordings and putting it some kind of clouds um, because I was like, okay, I, I, I'm tired of listening others on this language and uh, I'm full of opinions, sometimes too much. So I was like, okay, this is a great medium to put out opinions and I think that's also the comedy. It's a it's big, big discovery for me as a term of doing something. Can I ask you how did it come about that you end up making this comedy but actually maybe more interesting for me is what what does one have to do to become a comedian? Maybe this is my question. In order to become comedian, I'm in the process of I guess becoming one but there is different variations of comedy i think uh, for me being hooked on a, on a dark humor or laughter you know it's like you are obsessed with something sweet or some type of food and you like start then thinking why i like this food you know what it gives me and then you're like of course i don't want to spend money on going to buy i'm gonna make myself because it's not Of course, being funny in a bar, it's not the thing. But the type of humor was, I noticed, very specific that can resonate with my own personal interest, other type of art, you know, like my own art that I'm doing. And uh, then I was, you know, then kind of beginning of pandemic and, you know, I got this uh, Corona Hilfe booster. I I had no jobs. I had plenty of time. I was very much bored and uh, didn't know what to do with myself. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to try out stand-up comedy. Because I was till then doing some writing jokes. I did not know that that's a joke. Then I uh, discovered that being a comedian or stand-up comedian, it's a lot of writing. It's the least... Of course, you need to have a note for it, or but it's a lot of, um, I say, the strategies how to write, and that for me that was the base discovery. Okay, I first need to learn how to write this, and the delivery is gonna come by itself. As better and cleaner you write, and you need to write the way you speak, and you know that's hard because we write we self-correct immediately the way we are taught in school. So actually to unlearn this way, where actually I write a joke, then I record myself saying this joke without reading it, and then I play audio and compare what I read and what I actually said. And then I see it's not, then I need to literally dictate to myself from the audio, rewrite again on the paper, and do this like washing through a couple of times until every each word comes to its place. And you, as a writing SMS, then it's like very dense, but to the point. Should not be too long if there is no point to be long. For example, yesterday I wrote a joke. 
I just had this idea. I wanted to write something about uh, Nord Stream pipe closing. And, you know, just thinking about thinking. And I was like, okay, I can connect it with some bit from before I had. I never used it. And then I wrote a joke. It was three lines. And then on my way to the comedy show, I was repeating the joke in my head. Until I came to the comedy club, it was one hour. The joke expanded. It was like one and a half minute instead of 10 seconds. Because just thinking about it, your, your juices in brain start to work and the comedy starts to work. So one bit led to another, to another. It's like making synonyms. One joke made another synonym, which could be even more darker or much more funnier. And then like it just starts rolling on just writing and eating this hamburger from, you know, kebab shops. And it was really interesting. It's uh, the, this writing process where actually just have first word as more you're repeating in your head. It's kind of blossoming by itself. So how to become a comedian when I become one, I might tell you, I mean, I'm still uh, just obsessed with it. And I think that's a good path to be obsessed with it. That's how you makes you hooked. Well, how much are you getting paid for these actions? Well, last night I got paid three euros. No, you don't get paid here. I mean, how it works uh, in Berlin, but also in New York. Berlin is, uh, let's say, a small comedy scene. I don't know how it is in other cities in Germany, but for example, English comedy scene, it's the biggest, I'm assuming, in Berlin because of diversity, but it's still not something that could pay off so much. So if you're hosting, if you're a host, so I, I decide to make a show and I go to a bar, I ask them for the, for the venue and then the bar gets part of it. Marketing needs to get part of it, the money, if, if you're selling tickets. One ticket, it's 8 to 12 euros. And from that, you need to pay the you know, venue to marketing, event bride, and you earn yourself as a host. And at the end, Comedians get nothing except one drink. But there are shows, depending, I think, on the how, what kind of host I want to be and I guess how much money you earn. It happened a couple of times if it's showcase, not open mic. They're selling tickets and then they earn, I don't know, let's say 600 euros per night. They calculate how much this is. And then at the end, it's like 200 euros or 300 euros uh, left for comedians, and it's five of us, or six. If I had five minutes, I get 30 to 40 euros. Seven minutes, maybe 40, 60 euros. If you had 10 or more minutes, it was like 50 euros per night. Which is, uh, if you would pay, be paid like six times a month, would be a mini job. I'm still doing it. I didn't even care about the money, and that's the part of like, which is dangerous, that I'm hooked on it, but I'm doing producing negative money. I'm investing so much work in writing on this because it gives me enormous pleasure and joy like I did not experience in years. And this is maybe bad to, for others to hear because they will just continue to not be paid and I'm not going to pay me ever. No, but it's not much different in U.S., like I was asking, I was speaking about a comedian that works there. And he also said, like, even in the biggest clubs in New York, because they are the biggest, they don't need to pay you much. They will pay you $50 a night, a gig. And that's like 10 to 15 minutes. 
So you need to, you know, grind a lot. Um, open mics, are, of course, are not paid. Sometimes you need to pay or bring people to these open mics. So because over there, everyone is comedian. It's like here, everyone is artist. Over there, everyone is comedian. Everyone is writing jokes, having joke books with them, talking about open mics, about hosts and so on. Like when it comes to money, I downgraded, I would say, from visual art. I went even deeper down. But I'm trying now to, like I would say, combine it with with my uh, practice that I was doing till now. And somehow it seems like um, when you speak with um, curators or institutions, they seem to like this idea, you know, of someone making joke of them. And I, I'm like, okay, good, I, I can do that. Because I really found that I finally utilize all this that I can do and I can speak and just producing opinions and opinions. Because when I came to Germany, I was tabula rasa. I had no clue. I had not, I didn't know anything. Not even a language. Not, I didn't know what's West, what's East, where I'm from, where I came from to. And then, you know, from years, I just saw, thought like, okay, having thought, it's not opinion. And then I just, this opinion started to emerge and it's like, okay, I have a lot of opinions, which are um, non-filtered. And this is, this is good for the comedy. As more direct you are, it has more potential to work with the humor. Because a lot of people filter themselves. Did I answer to your question? Yeah. How, how do you protect yourself from people who are offensive to people who are on stage. Did you have any bad experience? There are a lot of bad experiences, I said, I think, but uh, I did not experience. I'm still like very young in this and I'm not sure if I still have ability or such a control, if I would be able to control that kind of situation if it would happen to me as a comedian. I think you really need to have a lot of experience to react and to, uh, you know, punch back if you have hecklers in the public. Uh, but of course, I have my own opinions, um, not even about p people, like, you know, when you're speaking about certain comedians, and even within my group of friends, it's like we have completely sometimes different uh, preferences or different opinions, especially in, in the time of woke culture and canceling culture. Which in some point I'm sick of, you know, especially because I think the comedy suffers a lot in this, like what, what you're entitled to speak about and in which way. I think you can speak about everything, depends how you speak about it. There is no limit. And it's almost like the most purest way of expression. Oh my God, it's like you're interviewing me now. It's, mm. uh, but I wanted to, because uh, I said something. But there's nothing bad about that. No, it's of course it's not. You should let it. your guests do that. Yes, I know. We did this many times, but sometimes uh, I, I can speak a lot. I have the same issue normally, but I'm also not stopping because actually I'm not recording myself when I take interview. In my editing process, then I don't exist. I'm, re I'm writing again uh -huh. to moderate maybe the interviews which I did. Yeah. For the people who hear you, who will not click online to hear you, for the people who will hear you in the radio, it's good that they know you. Yeah, that's cool. I was listening your episodes from Language of Choice, and it really was for me like each 
I don't know if you call them episodes at all. It was like a, you know? So language of choice is a contribution to a radio show and podcast, which is called Voice Versa, and it's aired on Deutschland Funkultur in Germany. And this, what you heard, was a selection of only my part in it, I think. Okay, so it was other contributors as well. Yes, it's always in a context with other contributors. And it's moderated by Dominique Jalot, who is discussing somehow and linking pieces together. And then it goes online under a form of podcast. So it has a jingle, it has some kind of interludes, it has several people together, and Dominique is the host and the moderator. And I am one of the authors. The first uh, season is over, and now I'm doing my second season as well. Okay. But it's not going to be language of choice anymore. Um, but it would be... What? It, it, I, you yeah. don't know. <laughs> I know, but I, um, I'm working on it. Okay. Uh, more or less, it's a kind of a idea, because it's about work and language. And... What I'm trying or what I'm curious is to go back to Romania and ask people whom I worked with before or that do the kind of work I'm doing or they're somehow close to me to ask them what would I do if I would go back. If and you would decide to return. Mm-hmm. Nice. I mean, this is uh, something I'm doing, like interviews a lot now with people who taught to return, tried, or um, just having um, idea of like, because I'm, yeah, that's the whole reason why I'm in Braunschweig now. It's to, to develop the project or um, form for this project that I proposed. It's about the idea of returning as something shifting and temporary, imaginary, and especially about the fear of returning and in which shapes it can take place. And what influenced this idea or fear? Um, because I think it's very much underrepresented thought or concept overall in the idea of, let's say, displacement or migration. It's something always that it's a bit neglected or taboo or depends on the context. Question is always a bit funky. And more than... Um, like more often is there is no answer to the question, you know? So there is just constant discussion. And as more as I'm doing it, as more interviews or uh, interviews, conversations I'm having, more it's becoming clear to me that there should not be a done project, you know? The project that it's like sealed, vexed, presented and packed and okay, this is the done project, something that should be constantly alive and activated or um, continuous, continuously growing. I'm even thinking like people that I interviewed till now, I interview again in five years. It will be different, you know? But yeah, what I discovered about this topic was insane. And how much some aspect that I never thought of, like gender, has big role in this topic. 
Yeah, like uh, I actually wrote uh, a project about it uh, like two years ago. And I was applying for funds here. And I never got anything. And then uh, I want, I was really persisting in this. And But the way I wrote it in the first place was terrible. It was like the text, well, you know, it's always limiting with letters and washing through different translators. Uh, was very hard and that at the end look now when I would read the first version of this idea would be like I'm encouraging immigrants to go home you know <laughs> it was very weird but um, you know then it really helped talking with people to make it clear um, what exactly I was interested in this and where it comes from for me personally and then I could actually go into the conversation with others because you know some people they never wanted to talk about it because it's too triggering or it's too painful or too problematic and that's also fine. It's also a bit like asking somebody who was asking somebody who was in a marriage if they want to return to their ex-partner. Yeah. Who also maybe was not the most accommodating. I don't know if this conversation actually was what I was expecting is going to be, but also it's not, not that I had any expectations in a specific way, you know? Because I was on the way here doodling things that were popping out in my head about knowing your work and um, what I was interested in. But somehow, you know, I like that it did maybe go into that direction as well. I'm menstruating and I'm really low. And... I've been really tired recently and I'm I'm working on too many things at the same time. But uh, I am living from my art, which is always a weird idea. But that's... Mm, how do you live from your art? I am not giving service anymore. And this is why heart service is important for me because many of my projects are based on the idea that I am inventing characters which are service-giving characters and they are giving to society things which society doesn't think that it needs because it's humor and it's maybe creativity can be philosophical or very introspective or and this is really tiring also to always make out of every second second of your life to make a story. Yeah. It's like uh, Yasmina, the being which is feeding the artist, which is feeding the monster, which is feeding the, which is feeding the woman, which is feeding somehow the body in order for it to exist. It's like... Um, also under the question why always and uh, that's why I think a kind of an idea of a satire where you can ask what are the limits to the role of artists in society and who's pointing on these limits and is it a privilege is it a comfortable thing is it a thing of responsibility so I think that also in a kind of a non-theatrical way, using a theatrical aspect somehow 
of creativity or of oral traditions to take these services and just have people interacting with that without having any theatrical approach to it. It's just basically the name has also something to do with what we were discussing before about this unfinishedness because I I believe that's the most beautiful thing I have that I'm 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 constantly not interested to finish and that a lot of the things I'm doing are pointing to that unfinishedness or not even started thing which then becomes another thing so I'm trying to put together a book now And I have a great title for it. Mm-hmm. It's called Synopsis Peace. Translate to me. Synopsis Peace is synopsis, but uh, mumbled around. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, a, a mistaking way of saying that. And it thinks it's a novel, but it's a poetry book. And there is the plot of the novel inside of it. Inside of one poem. And I like this idea a lot. I wrote an opera libretto, which is also just a poem. Mm. And it's also a game, so you can play it with other people. And it doesn't have lines. It has possibilities for what the lines could be. So you can you can imagine everything. Mm. And I, I like that idea that I can do that. And I can publish this without having any clue what it will do, you know, like what... So will your grandma be happy now? Maybe not, because maybe it's just gonna be a pamphlet kind of thing. <laughs> like, so I like also this idea of the flyer as a medium because I love flyers. Oh, I hate them. You hate them. I really love flyers. I think they're amazing, and I think they're. I I don't know. I still. I worked in advertising for a while and I think thanks to that experience I'm also here now because uh, they were saying that the people who are there who also studied art and in my opinion they were artists but in a capitalistic way or they were like kind of selling their creativity in that way but they were very much artists. These people really pushed me away from advertising. We were getting drunk at parties and they were telling me, go, you can do better. In Romania? Yes. I mean, I feel this is... Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I I never actually been in Romania, but uh, the tendency of people will tell you more often to go rather than to stay. Feels like uh, it's it's a good advice. Like thinking that, you know leaving it a success yes then let's wrap it up in this nice story um i'm gonna link your works to this podcast really yes cool so people can listen your amazing contribution to this radio which i really enjoyed and as i said for me each segment was really like a piece for itself and it's definitely not something that you can uh, listen as a you know background noise but um, yeah I don't know if I was listening a, a song or a or a reading of text or a conversation everything was kind of at the same time and was a very well produced I was like 
okay, look at these changing channels from left to right. And it was really, <laughs> it was really an experience, but I could really much relate. And um, I see you did this 2001 or it was earlier? The 20, 2021, I mean, sorry. Mm, yeah, 2021, yes. I think. Uh, and I could How many of them you heard? All of them. It really resonates with me and um, this idea of living between languages. And uh, I was, I'm very much interested in that space, in that um, crossings. And I don't like to call them nowadays like misunderstandings that can occur because misunderstanding... Like before I was calling it like that. I'm interested in misunderstanding and potential of it. But I don't know if that word is proper now. There is a potential in, in these gaps uh, that are created. And I'm very much interested. And that's when I also, when I started to be interested, I gave up on any... I gave up on pur- like on purpose to try pronouncing or even more upgrading the um, uh, like forced upgrading my knowledge of certain language because I was just thinking why to serve whom and uh, or it's enough for what I want and what I can transfer I felt like less I know better it is you know even for comedy more limits you have with the language more you I feel like uh, I, I, be- I become more sharper Today I was in a train with two two boys next to me and they were talking about how they like their kebab. And uh, I thought <laughs> that my daily experience of not understanding German expands to understanding German about food and liking that kind of thing that I'm... I'm kind of aware of food terms. Now, of course, I understand much more and I can speak of it, but I was so, I was laughing and I let, I let them see that I'm laughing because they were very serious about it. And then I had to remember this pleasure of actually being here and not understanding, which my friend Slobodan is also talking about in one of the episodes. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I am also quite happy like that. But on the other hand, I have this urge to very, very often to to say certain things to certain people in German. And I cannot. And this is really frustrating. So I, 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 I have this possibility, I always call it a privilege or a luxury, to not have to apply for visa because then I would have had to know very well German by now. And I'm aware of this, you know, it's kind of offering me the possibility to be a ghost in here and to participate uh, in a way maybe when I want, unless it's a violent, uh, it's a violent thing and then I don't have any choice. But yeah, I think that... I still can't deal well with this. And I'm just kind of... Mm, because back home, all I do here is not possible. And it doesn't mean anything to anyone. Exactly. 
whenever I go to Bosnia, when I go to my home, I see that art has no purpose at all. I, I mean, it loses itself. So I need to reinvent my reason why I'm doing it every each time when I go home. Mm-hmm. I go home and I see art can change the world. Like no one here around me in my in this village. This melancholy that comes over you and the real like realism that encompass you it's so strong that my position of an artist I feel so little so powerless without army of art of artists and other cultural practitioners next to me or around me or in my surrounding that it's just like feel pointless to do art when I'm there so every time I'm there I need to convince myself again and again and again why I'm actually doing this and it's very as you said it's very big privilege actually to be here and always being in the loop or in conversation or even I didn't mean that I don't know what I'm do why I'm doing that for so it's interesting mm-hmm. that you thought about that because I convince always people that the role of art in society is not only emancipatory but is fun and this is super important to repeat that all your life you know how activists anti-racist activists have to say the same things five times a day the, their whole life and you see them over and over again like I see my my feminist uh, professors there were two in uni two of them I see them looking the same like having the same the same looks on their faces when they go on TV to speak about this madness of well the anti-abortion situation is from the US which are kind of resonating very well where I'm from. So I see them having that kind of same face. So this repetition, we are also responsible for, for this repetition. We are responsible for the repetition of why are we doing this, not to question ourselves, to keep on doing it and make it normal, make it absolutely normal for the next generations of different types of bodies, different types of, of beings, different types of, of children, to believe that this is okay and they have to do it and it's going to be in the benefit of everybody else it's not just a waste of time it's important i completely agree and when you were now mentioning this fun and um you know i go home usually when i'm there there is some kind of production going on for my projects and that's what not just my family but the whole village is awaiting you know because their everyday routine it's gone like there will be something and for me that's already art you know because it's fun for them they don't question they're not asking why doing this or for what like is it like they know somewhere else in the world i'm actually an artist and i go there and my we the whole family starts doing the thing like whether it's my cousin my father the the best the one and only a metal worker in the city or the village, you just have one option and that's the best option, you know? And this uh, kind of is what for me is art. But as you're saying, you need to repeat constantly. This is what I said. Um, I just feel very much alone 
in that small bubble. And I feel that they're here, this solidarity or like, I just feel there should be more of artists. Like there should be like quantity, really. I needed an army to start pursuing this, even like talking with my family in, 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 the, in one room with three generations where I can't believe that my grandma that it's 90 understands more of what I'm speaking about than the middle generation of my aunts. And I'm so helpless there, like against all of them and my cousins that we are kind of my age, my mother's age and my grandma. And I'm trying to pursue something that, of course, I have from my artistic perspective or knowledge or experiences or whatever I gained through these 30 years of my life cannot penetrate even a second like to come to them but still they love me and they respect me for what I'm doing and living from what I'm doing because in their eyes they also live in Germany they're like oh well you got this fellowship on university so it must be that you're doing it's good they also came and recorded this work with me. they flew from Frankfurt because not that they were maybe aware what it's in art, like you know whatever means this artistic value but it was important for them they knew it was important for me they loved me there was this family energy going into and I loved it you know it's like I feel like I'm utilizing my whole family as a production team and I'm changing their every day you know they took the day off which they now do even when they're sick to come here to record an artwork and this is great like they would not do that usually and uh, now they are like, you know, you know, in this work that might be for years, like a book, you know, and they love that. The people I think love to be captured in a artwork, thinking they're gonna, it's like a gravestone for them. It's like, now I'm, I'm, I'm gonna live forever because, you know, you're in the artwork. So yeah, I really... um. Yeah, what I said, but I still stand behind this. When I go there, I need always to reinvent myself. Reason like, I feel so privileged, so so privileged to do what I'm doing, which for a lot of people, this emancipation it's so out of reach, because they have other struggles. That for me, long time ago, there were not struggles anymore. You know, like what I, it's not living even from month to month. It's living from day to day. And this really hurts you, this inequality, these differences. And this is why I need always to be become aware, okay, I'm very much privileged to do what I'm doing. So why I'm doing, like, how to use this uh, privilege, in which way. So yeah, this was the, the story of going back, in a way. So yes, I don't know, thank you so much. For this conversation. Thank you. I hope it's going to be interesting. I mean, for me, it was interesting. Of course, if I had a studio, it would be amazing. But I'm also taught in the school, you know, working with zero budget and working. Um, you know, if I was waiting to get a studio, probably I would never do this. Mm-hmm. So once I wanted to do it, I set up everything in like two weeks. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I've personally started doing it because of myself and not knowing certain things and to have fun. Nice. Good. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Ciao.